uh, last week, um, Beck preached about Mary Magdalene, who who saw Jesus in the garden, was the first to see Jesus resurrected in the garden. And um, her breath was taken away. She realized that the man in the garden was not the gardener, but it was Jesus. And she embraced him, but he said to her, you know, you have to learn to live now without me in the physical flesh because I'm going to go and be returned to my Father in heaven. And there's going to be a new era where you're going to relate to me via the Holy Spirit. And Beck challenged us, who are not sure if we were Christians, to find out if the resurrection is really true. And also she challenged us, if we are Christians, to have the same passion and energy that Mary Magdalene had when she found out and ran off and told everyone about Jesus. And this morning, now we move our focus to Thomas, who's most famous for questioning the resurrection and his doubts about the resurrection. And the main point I want to get across this morning is that it's totally fine to doubt. Thomas is the saint of doubters, but God has included him in the Bible for a reason, to show that actually he's fine with our doubts. As we read the resurrection stories, we find out that Jesus appeared to 10 of the 11 apostles. And for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why, when Jesus appeared to them. The other apostles got to see him in the flesh. And Judas didn't because he was dead. And Thomas didn't because he was somewhere else. And poor Thomas. We don't know a lot about him. We know he was a twin with a serious personality. If we go back to John 11, verse 16, when Lazarus had recently died, the apostles don't want to go back to Judea where some Jews had attempted to stone Jesus. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is a serious bloke. The other time was in John 14, verse 5, the Last Supper. Jesus says he must go to be uh, with his father and prepare rooms for them. Uh, he's talking about heaven, and Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. Show us the way, serious and passionate. So this third encounter with Jesus and this third mention of Thomas, he's equally as passionate, and he's, he's even more profound here. Um, the other apostles tell Thomas that they'd seen Jesus, and, and Thomas was perhaps still in shock with the whole cro- what had happened on the cross and, the, and the, the news he'd heard and he's grieving. He doesn't really believe. He couldn't accept what they're saying. Perhaps he'd seen a ghost. Perhaps they're all delusional. Perhaps they'd gone overboard with a communion wine, thinks Thomas. So Thomas says in verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And the word for put is very strong. It's almost like shove. I'm going to shove my hand in the hole. Thomas wanted evidence. Back in September 2014, the Australian Christian journalist, uh, she's, a, she's a journalist who happens to be a Christian on the ABC and also writes for The Age sometimes, um, Julia Baird, she wrote an article in the New York Times um, which was pretty cool for her to be able to get an article in the New York Times. And it was called Doubt as a Sign of Faith. 
And what had happened was Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Anglican head of the Anglican Church, had, had, had admitted in a sermon that, um, in Bristol Cathedral that there were times when he doubts. And he, and he, sa- and he says, um, you know, is there God? Where is God? Um, he'd been asked specifically if he harboured doubts. He responded, it's a really good question. The other day I was praying over something as I was running and I ended up saying to God, look, this is all very well, but isn't it time you did something if you're there? And what happened was after this sermon happened, he got reported in the news and all these kind of wowsers, the kind of anti um, religious wowsers said, ah, see, even the Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't really believe in God. And then the ultra-religious people were like, oh, the Anglicans, they're going soft on us again, you know. And, and Julia Baird criticised all of those critics and said, actually, it's totally human to doubt. And in Justin Welby's story, actually, he has great sadness. He's, he nursed his... Uh, he had an alcoholic father... And um, he nursed um, his alcoholic father to his death. And also he had a seven-month-old baby. His first child died suddenly in a car accident in in the early 80s. And this was a great time of suffering and, and pain, as you would imagine, for anybody. And... Will be explained that he related really closely at that time to Psalm 88, which describes the despair of a man who has lost all his friends and cries out, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And in the psalm it says, Darkness is my bleakest, it, it, darkness is my closest friend. Julia Bed writes this, Just as courage is persisting in the face of fear, so faith is persisting in the presence of doubt. Faith becomes then a commitment, a practice, and a pact that is usually sustained by belief. But doubt can also be a strength. Doubt acknowledges our own limitations and confirms or challenges fundamental beliefs and is not a detractor of belief, but a crucial part of it. Or to put it another way, the American pastor and teacher... Greg Boyd, who Mick put, Mick put me onto, who wrote this book called Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idol of Certainty, says it this way. He says, faith actually presupposes uncertainty. It's called faith for a reason. You don't know it for sure. That's why it's faith. Therefore, faith that seeks certainty is faith that seeks not to be faith. This is a contradiction. So it's impossible to have faith without doubt. And at Mary Creek Anglican, we are a church where you should see doubt as an important part of your faith. We believe it's important in our spiritual walk to be able to externalise your doubts and say it out loud. I actually don't know what I think about something or other. And it's important for your mental health and your spiritual health. Famous Christian writer Philip Yancey, who I recommend you should read, is also a famous doubter. He said in an interview about his own doubts that as a child he'd been part of a church where he wasn't allowed to express doubt. So if you doubted, you were seen as a sinner. And so he learned to conform to that idea. But in the meantime, all the doubts just build up and it wants to explode out of you. 
He said, the danger of saying don't doubt, just believe, is that you don't really resolve the doubts and they tend to resurface in a more toxic form. So what we need to do if we have doubts is we need to learn to doubt together and to not feel like you're alone and be ashamed of it and that you can find others in church who can be your safe doubt companion. And don't think, make, don't make the mistake of thinking it's the strong Christians who don't doubt and it's the weaker Christians or the less experienced Christians who doubt all the time. Actually, everyone doubts if they've got a healthy faith and facing reality. And also, you can learn to doubt your doubts as much as you doubt your faith. So don't, if you're going to have an open mind and be thinking about things, don't simply deny your um, Deny your doubts or feel guilty about them, but also don't you know, stop yourself from going, well, maybe my doubts are wrong too. So we shouldn't really be seeing Thomas then as a, as a flaky sceptic. He's given the unfortunate nickname Doubting Thomas, as if he was the, the only one of the apostles that had a weak faith. But he's not a sceptic. In, in in he's not a sceptic in a kind of a, in a negative sense, He's a healthy sceptic. It is an, it's a positive thing. And that's why I say it's included in the Bible for a reason. If you or I had the option to see the resurrected Jesus, I think we'd say the same thing. If all your friends are saying, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead, you'd say, I want to see him too. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know. So Thomas is still a believer. He had seen Jesus' life and teaching and he'd seen him die on the cross. He'd seen the miracles. He'd, he'd been changed himself. He'd been called to the ministry and followed. But the other ten apostles had witnessed the resurrection. They had stood up close and personal with Jesus. And their future ministry would be based on, the wit- on this witness. That's why they get to go on and start the church. Because they can go from town to town and say, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. And as readers of John's Gospel we are seeing the royal treatment these apostles got with regard to the resurrection. Uh, They get to see the resurrected Jesus. In in Acts 1, chapter 1, when the 11 go and replace Judas and they look for a 12th apostle, they took this very seriously and they say, uh, Acts 1, 21, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time with the with us the whole time with the Lord, that the Lord Jesus was living among us. So someone who's been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, so when, after he ascended into heaven. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That's what they're looking for. And when Paul takes up his ministry as an apostle, he can do so because the resurrected Jesus appeared to him miraculously on the road to Damascus. So John needs to witness Jesus' resurrection properly. Um, sorry, Thomas needs to witness Jesus' resurrection properly. Or he can't go on and fully participate with confidence in his ministry as an apostle who has witnessed the resurrection. Now a week had gone by and it was again Sunday eve- evening and the apostles were gathering again. Perhaps the tradition of the weekly Sunday worship had begun already and they're in the upper room and they're trying to worship in some kind of weird way and the doors are locked and the passage shows us that Jesus appeared in the room and stood with them. Uh, 
just as he'd done the week earlier, and just as he had miraculously appeared to, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is the resurrected Jesus doing things that only resurrected people can do, just appearing. And he greeted them as he greeted them a week earlier. Peace be with you. And while Jesus wasn't in the room uh, the week earlier when Thomas had made his demands to put his finger in his hands and side, yet Jesus appears and knows exactly what Thomas is wanting. It's his supernatural knowledge. And this is the kind of being we're dealing with here, one who knows us intimately, knows our longings, hears our requests, even if we're not physically present with him. So Jesus deals with his questions up front. Carry out your test, he says. Stop being faithless, be a believer. And this encounter alone seems to be enough for Thomas. John doesn't even tell us that Thomas went through with the test. We don't even know if he actually did it. He probably didn't even need to. Thomas just had to be standing there in front of him to go, well, this is enough. And in the famous opening of the Gospel of John, it describes Jesus, the Son of God, as the Word who was God, who became flesh, who lived among them, and that the disciples had seen his glory. And here in verse 28, Thomas makes the most dramatic statement about Jesus, a statement which brings the Gospel of John to a climax For the first time, he reveals a bold understanding of who Jesus is more than anyone had done in history. And he says, my Lord and my God. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus had been on trial. Who is this man? Thomas gives the answer. He is the Lord. He is God. Thomas understood that normally men did not rise from the dead like this. And that's why Jesus, he gave Jesus the title that normally he would give Yahweh in the Old Testament times, Lord and God. Leon Morris, the Australian, famous Australian theologian, writes, the one who was now so obviously alive, although he had died, could be addressed in the language of adoring worship. And what Thomas is saying here is what it means to be a Christian. There is content to the faith. It's propositional in that it describes Jesus as Lord and God. And it is personal in that it owns these claims. My Lord and my God, personal. Is Jesus not just a nice person? He's not just your boyfriend. He's not just your magic genie who's here to give you what you need when you're in trouble. He's, not, he's actually the most important person in the universe. He's the Son of God, he's the Lord. And Thomas got it in one. And then Jesus gives a gentle rebuke, a gentle rebuke. Verse 29, and he says to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The point isn't that he's trying to make Thomas feel small. This would be manipulative of Jesus. After all, it was him who invited him to put his fingers in the hole. Rather, Jesus is pointing out that while the apostles got to have this special encounter and others would over the next 40 days, in the future... Believers will come to faith without this kind of physical experience of the resurrected Jesus. In the future, people will believe based on the testimony of others. And as a result, they will be blessed. The theologian from the 17th century, Calvin, goes further and says, We now behold Christ in the gospel in the same manner as if he visibly stood before us. So when you read the Bible, read the, the gospels, 
hear, or hear people express, tell you about Jesus, it's like you're seeing the resurrected Jesus. As Paul says to the Galatians, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Galatians 3 verse 1. And now we hear that testimony from Paul and we read about it in the scriptures and we get the benefit of their witness. And listen to what um, Apostle Peter says to the persecuted Christians, which we had read at the start of the service. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what can we do with all of this? Why, you know, I say it's okay to doubt. What do we do? How do we move forward in our faith? I've got five applications. Here we go. First of all, believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection. So at a basic level, to be a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection. You need to put your trust in his death and resurrection. You can have doubts about it. You can have doubts about all kinds of things in in Christianity. And that's okay because doubts go with faith. You you say, well, I have doubts. I don't really know how he rose from the dead. And maybe it was a conspiracy. But even though it might have been a conspiracy, I'm just going to gamble on it with my life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. I'm just going to go with it. At a basic level... You need to say what Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I don't really understand it, but I'm going to just trust it and say to Jesus, my Lord and my God, you really did rise again. I have all kinds of doubts. You know, one of my doubts I think about a lot is what really will happen when I die? I don't really know. I know what the Bible says, but I I don't really know. And I can't really verify it with anyone. Something I think about a lot. What do I do with that? Do I suppress it? No. I just let it sit there. And in the meantime, I adore Jesus and I serve him. Philip Yancey says that the only way to take the claim seriously that Jesus is the only way to God is to look at Jesus himself. What kind of person is he? Is he an egomaniac? Is he deluded? Is he trustworthy? He says, something about Jesus made people leave their jobs and families and follow him around the hills and plains of Palestine. Something about him attracts the allegiance of one third of the people of this planet today. I've taken a look at the evidence and concluded that Jesus is who he says he is, the human expression of the invisible God. And he goes on to say, I'm mindful of a saying from the Anglican Bishop Michael Ramsey, in God is, in God is no unchristlikeness at all. And that's an abstract way of saying, if you want to know what God looks like, Look at Jesus, his combination of qualities, fierceness and yet compassion, absolute confidence and yet humility, brilliance and yet simplicity. I find no other human being. For me, Jesus is a trustworthy guide. So at a very basic level, it sounds like I'm saying the opposite of what I'm saying, but just have faith in Jesus. That doesn't mean you don't have doubts as well, but just go, I'm going to go with it. You have doubts about his death and resurrection, but... You go, I'm just going to put my trust in it. I'm just going to go with it. It's fine for a Christian to say, I'm not sure how the death and resurrection worked, but I'm just going to go with it. The Christianity that is based around Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that's really the kernel, and you've got to have that to be able to be a Christian in what you put your trust in. Our temptation as middle-class educated 
intellectual types who are into justice is to just say, love one another and don't worry about the details of Christianity. Uh, This kind of gospel does not transform anyone. The poor, you will find, don't respond to that kind of gospel. The marginalised don't come flocking to the church in the first century because the apostles were going to tell people just to love each other and be nice and be, yeah, just, you know, non-judgmental, you know, yeah, Christian loving everyone, yeah, come on. No, they came flocking because they heard about this man who died and rose again. He really is a Messiah that changes everything. The past, present and the future is changed. The Apostle Paul says if you get rid of this resurrection, then the whole of Christianity is a waste of time. So that's the first idea. To move forward, you've just got to put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Secondly, it's a kind of a a building on that idea, faith is about surrendering. So to be able to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, you have to undergo a kind of intellectual surrender. And this is not blind faith, but it's giving up of your conditions. The 13th century scholar Thomas Aquinas presents a kind of Christianity that's based on question after question after question. And he, and he says that Christianity is infra-rational. It's not lower than reason, but it is, in fact... Uh, sorry, sorry, he says it's not infra-rational. It's not lower than reason, but it's, in fact, supra-rational. So what he means is that after engaging with Christianity, with all of your questions and research, there's a surrendering, a surrendering that occurs to the reality that is required. It's like falling in love. I've I've given this illustration before, but I'll give it again. You meet someone and that person catches your eye. You think they are pretty hot and you do a bit of background Facebook research and find out they're not an axe murderer. Uh, You talk to their friends and all of that. And then you, but you don't really know very much about them, do you? Until you have a conversation with them. They speak to you. Then you have to make a decision. Do you keep going with this person and pursue them? Do you become vulnerable and surrender to them and give yourself to them, you know, in a relationship? If you can't ever kind of do that bit by bit by bit, then you will never fall in love. So what you do is you surrender on the far side of reason. You go, I don't really know everything, but I'm just going to give it a go. If all you try and do, though, is think through the relationship and go, I'm just going to work it all out, I'm going to work it all out, I'm going to work it all out, and analyse and deconstruct, then you will be, in fact, trying to aggressively control the other person. So Thomas could have actually uh, been asking question after question. He could have placed more demands on this supposed resurrected Jesus. Well, I see a person there with holes in them, but um, show me more. Do a miracle. Come on, you know. Um, turn the water into wine. One more time, you know, walk on the water. But Jesus comes back to Thomas and says, you know, you can put your hands in there, but blessed are those who have to make those con- who don't have to make those conditions and demand proof, but who are willing to surrender on the far side of reason. Ask your questions. Keep asking your questions, but stop trying to control the situation. So if you think of yourself as a liberal progressive type person and a Christian, then the best quality you have is that you are open-minded and you're humble and you're ready to learn more and more. But don't make the mistake of thinking that open-mindedness can only lead you away from Jesus. It's a fallacy. It can also lead you to Jesus. 
Perhaps the open-minded thing to do is actually to say, my Lord and my God. You're going to eventually need to drop your conditions, just as Thomas had to drop his conditions. If you hold on to your conditions, they become your idol. Your intellect, if that's what it is, it's not going to bring you in your life and it's not going to forgive you of your sins. If you want to truly know something or someone, you have to take a risk. And this kind of deep knowledge begins with trust. Jesus is inviting you to trust him. So just believe in Jesus and surrender. And thirdly, your salvation, your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your certainty. Now, if you haven't already worked this out, you need to know that what the Bible says is that your salvation is not dependent on how certain you are about everything. Some people think that there's some churches where, you know, it's just how certain are you sure? You know, and then God's not going to save you if you don't really have that. God doesn't need us to have every doctrine worked out, every story, every chapter of the Bible, absolutely concrete in our heads of how it is. What has happened is some Christians have read James chapter 1, verse 6 to 7 out of context, which says this, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And these verses are so poorly misapplied so that people think if I just pray that God is going to give me that thing that I want and not doubt then I'll he'll give it to me but that's not what it's saying and it's also not saying that if you just doubt then you're flaky because in verse 5 of James chapter 1 it says if any of you lacks wisdom you should ask God who gives generously to all, who, uh, to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt and so on. In other words, James is saying, who do you go to for wisdom? You go to God. And it, for those Christians who, 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 are, who are like a wave tossing to and fro and, and just say, oh, well, I'm not going to go to God or the Bible. I'm going to go to other sources of wisdom outside of that, that's where your trouble lies. You're not going to get the the spiritual wisdom that you need. Go to God. This is not saying if you have doubts, you're flaky. It's saying if you pursue the spiritual knowledge you're looking in other places, then you're flaky. That's what it's saying. So just believe in Jesus. Faith is about surrendering and your salvation, it's not dependent on your certainty it's okay to have doubts. And fourthly, have faith so, so you can understand. Have faith so you can understand. So this, the way to really find life and spiritual energy in an excitement in your spiritual life that is full of questions and doubts is to make sure that you get your schema right. So if your schema is this, I'll try and understand everything of the, about God before I put my trust in him then that's not going to work. You're going to fail. Fail in the sense of having an exciting faith life. You'll just end up miserable and walking away from Christianity. Your schema should be, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus who lived and died and rose again. I don't really understand him, I'm just going to do it anyway. And after that, then I'm going to try and seek understanding. And I'm going to go to God, like James is saying, and not be flaky and look elsewhere, 
I'm going to go to him and the scriptures and what it says. And I'm just going, I don't, I don't know why, but I just, I think it's right. And I'm just going to pursue understanding that way. So then as you read the story of creation, which seems like amazing, and how does it even work? And Adam and Eve, and what's that? And Garden of Eden, and ooh, the snake, and whoop, that's all a bit weird. Or the strange stories like the flood, or Noah, and Jonah, and the whale, and how does it even work? I mean, can Jonah go in the whale, or... You know, um, the violence in the Old Testament, I mean, what kind of God are we worshipping here? Or the moral teachings on, in the Bible about sexuality and how, how it doesn't seem to even compute with contemporary 2018 values in, in Australia. How does that work? What do I do here? Or, or the exclusive claims that Jesus makes about uh, himself being the only way to God. Or why God allows suffering and evil. Your schema should be, I put my faith in Jesus first. Then I seek understanding after that. And that is the key to unlock the mysteries. So just believe in Jesus. Faith is all about surrendering. Have, your salvation should not depend on your certainty at all and have faith that first will lead to understanding second. And lastly, biblical faith is about commitment, not certainty. So we live... Um, in an over-psychologized world. Everything now is about what goes on in our brains. You know, but in the Bible, they didn't think like this. Faith is not a psychological concept in the Bible. Freud didn't even exist. You know, they didn't have any of those ideas. It's not about what they thought. In the Bible, faith is a covenantal relationship. It's about commitment. Uh, we are obsessed with family systems theory. What triggers us to feel like, whoa, you know, what our daddies did to us when we were little to make us feel, you know, insecure about ourselves, you know, or um, Myers-Briggs and what personality type am I and who is introverted and who's extroverted and, you know, but they didn't care about those sort of things. And the great Christian writer Leslie Newbigin says, Christian discipleship is not a two-stage affair in which a concept of truth is first formulated and is then translated into a program for action. No, it is a single action of faith and obedience to a living person, the response to a personal calling. Christian discipleship is simply, my Lord, my God, I'm going to be obedient now and work it out later, work all the questions out later. It's a covenantal relationship. You say, I will follow Jesus and you try and live for him. And the closest example we have of this, again, it's two times in this sermon, is marriage. You commit to the other person regardless of you, what you may think or feel down the track. Last night, some of us joined together with Angus and Fiona from our congregation who had celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. And this was a great reminder of what covenant looks like. They made a point of acknowledging the good times and the hard times, the joy and the suffering and yet they have continued with each other despite all of that, despite how hard it has been. And the Bible it does actually give us the tools for this kind of unconditional, covenantal-type relationship with God. You read the Psalms and you get the ache of my Lord, of my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Through to the Lord is my shepherd. Faith is about continuing on covenantally saying to Jesus, I will follow you no matter what doubts I might have. And your doubts come and go, 
And they might be huge at times and small at other times. He doesn't need us to have certainty. All the arguments against God in the New, Test- in the new and the Old atheists, like um, uh, no, Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, David Hume through to Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris these days and Richard Dawkins, they're actually in the Bible, these questions. Psalms, Job, Habakkuk and Lamentations. And you've got to have respect for a God, don't you, who gives us the freedom to reject him and even puts the arguments against him in his own Bible. He's given us a mind. He likes us to ask questions. But more importantly, he yearns for your heart. What he ultimately wants is your allegiance, your obedience. So surrender yourself to Jesus. Believe the apostles' witness as we have in the Bible about what Jesus did and who he is. And accept Jesus as your Lord and your God. Amen.